This episode of WTIP's Boundary Waters podcast is brought to you by Borderland Lodge, now celebrating their 100th year across the Narrows on beautiful Gunflint Lake, and for the first time in over a decade, serving visitors for the winter season. Please join them this December through March and stay in one of their updated guest suites or freshly remodeled cabins, offering all of today's amenities, complete with breathtaking panoramic views of the lake. There's plenty of adventure just beyond their doors with excellent Gunflint Lake trout fishing, quick access to the well-groomed Upper Gunflint Nordic Ski Trails, and Gunflint Snowmobile Trail. In the summer, they're a short paddle to the Boundary Waters entry point number 57 through Magnetic Lake, where you can sit under a waterfall, pick blueberries, and adventure along an international border. Or hike the nearby Magnetic Rock or High Cliffs Trails for bird's eye wilderness views. Borderland Lodge is an intimate resort experience dedicated to helping you, your friends, and your family create lasting, memorable experiences. Take your pick of lodge rooms with floor-to-ceiling lake views or pet-friendly, knotty pine cabins ranging from two to four bedrooms. Their pricing is inclusive. Guests enjoy a hearty continental breakfast with fresh rolls and hot entrees served daily, complimentary ice and firewood, use of kayaks, canoes, and snowshoes, and access to boat and pontoon rentals. Visit borderlandlodge.com for availability or find them on social media through their handle at Borderland Lodge. Borderland Lodge is a proud member of the Gunflint Trail Association. This is the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. This is the wilderness that Dave and I were both introduced to as kids. You know, our first wilderness camping experiences were in the Boundary Waters. And in summer, you wake up, you swim through the lake, you have breakfast, then you can relax, you can go paddling, you can go hiking. We've done this trip before to Horseshoe Lake, and I remember catching walleye there before. I went on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters, and it's, it was really cool. It was my first time. The route from Ram Lake back to Poplar Lake with, with no packs, with, with only a day pack, uh, we take it in one day. Well, you can look to Venus, you can look to Mars. I will set my sights by the northern star and in the deep dark blue. Oh, and in the deep dark blue, come the northern light. Welcome to episode 78 of the WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast. I'm Matthew Baxley. I'm Joe Fredericks. We're bringing to you the snowy month of November, another paddler profile. Look forward to hearing who today's featured paddler will be, and indeed it has been snowing. Lakes starting to freeze up slowly in the boundary waters, smaller lakes, uh, some of the ponds already frozen. Now in the middle of the month we've had the snow come down, colder temperatures, winter is here. By the time this episode airs, may- maybe, maybe, <laughs> we will have been out on the lake. <laughs> Well, uh, anything's possible with safety considerations in mind, of course. So we'll see how it unfolds. But there's cold weather coming, you know, before Thanksgiving, and it's just shaping up into winter. It was such a beautiful fall, like the best fall I think we've had for canoeing and getting out there in years, probably. And I said to many folks when we had the the ongoing warm snap, best case scenario, we go from this to full winter. In a day or two. Mm-hmm. And indeed, it has happened. <laughs> I'm planning on getting my skis out when I get home and 
just a few days ago, new Nordic skate blades came in the mail. I'm about to mount my cross-country ski bindings on those. So if your gear's not ready, get it out. Yeah. Get it ready. Get it tuned up. Check it. Make sure it's safe. Make sure you have everything you need because you don't want to be on your way out the door and notice something's gone. Right. I just did uh, my ice fishing tackle box gear bag swap the other day. Put away the Rapalas and you know, slip bobbers for the most part and so forth and pulled out the ice fishing jigs and was just getting ready to go, seeing how the auger's looking, all that. Uh, last year on our New Year's trip, which was our first pulling the polk sleds behind us, I forgot my trekking poles. Remember my ski poles? I forgot. Unfortunately, Kaylin Dix had a extra set to loan me. So that kind of stuff that I... You make a mistake like that once, you know? Absolutely. And then never again. Mm-hmm. But hopefully we can avoid any of those. In the pomp and circumstance that is the ceremonial bringing out of the gear. Mm. That's a great thing. It's entertaining. Indeed. (laughs) I mean, it's part of it. It's all part of it. Yeah. Uh, Here's a quick thing before we get into the Paddler profile and dive into today's episode. We got an email a couple weeks ago from a gentleman named Dale Woodbeck. Dale, thanks for sending this email to us. Really appreciate it. He called it, the subject line of the email was podcast trifecta. Dale said he's been listening to all the episodes since season one. They were up the North Shore, up up in the Boundary Waters area, up the Gunflint Trail, went to Duncan and Rose, went to the new stairway portage, Matthew, that you followed that story really closely over the summer, the, the rebuild from uh, wood to stone. So they wanted to check that out because they'd heard about it on the podcast. So they're up there. They're enjoying a beautiful day at the stairway portage. All of a sudden, somebody comes trotting by. Oh, look at that guy's not wearing any shoes. They just heard the episode about the barefoot paddler when we met Mark up on Brule Lake. Excuse me, sir, Dale says. Excuse me, sir. Y- yeah. Uh, I see you don't have any shoes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is your name Mark? Uh, yeah, actually. Mark Zimmer? Uh, that's me. You're the barefoot paddler. Well, I am. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> that's a good Mark Zimmer impersonation. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, spend some time with the guy. You even took your shoes off. Oh, yeah. Stinky. So, the, uh, so Dale says he got to talk with Mark Zimmer, the barefoot paddler, of course, and has this great conversation with him, uh, you know, and it all came through listening to the podcast. The Stairway Portage. The encounter with Mark, the barefoot paddler himself. Mm-hmm. Oh, this amazing way that, I mean, it, we get emails from y'all regularly and we really appreciate it. Keep them coming. And stories like this, especially when your worlds and the podcast all manifest in this magical moment in the wilderness or outside of it. Those are, we love hearing about that. Mm-hmm. We get to hear them sometimes. A, a story like what Dale shared with us at Canoe Copia or something, but it's great to hear them anytime. So keep those emails coming. BWCA podcast at gmail.com. Now on to the paddler profile. We, we would always do family trips together and, 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 and my, my, my father and, and Ted's, Ted's father, Dick and Jerry, would always do these annual fishing trips up in northern Canada, and we'd paddle into Quetico. But whenever we would take these trips, uh, Bear's interest was not interested. He wasn't interested in the fishing. He was interested in the solitude, 
taking your time, paddling, exploring. Uh, and then sometimes we would do family trips as well with our whole families, right? Because, you know, Bear's sister, Wendy. Yeah, I got it from Bear along the way. Yeah, we started going to the Boundary Waters. We took off in the Boundary Waters out of Ely in July and wandered about in the uh, United States and Canada for the most part, and then wandered back to Ely come the 1st of November and then hiked the Keck Trail to one side and then back to the other because that's where his vehicle was. And then Quetico and then Wabakini and Woodland Caribou and rivers farther north into Manitoba and Saskatchewan and Yukon and um, his need to explore never ends. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> Bear trips, you always have to bring a headlamp because they're always going to go late. And um, there's all sorts of funny names for it like bearathons or you know you got you uh, oh you're going on a bear trip or you know, so you always know they're going to be ambitious bear trips as we call them in our colloquially in our community <laughs> over many years of um, learning to get stronger and tougher and more confident and uh, more comfortable in the woods and he's an amazing teacher for that and it's fun to feel it's fun to feel badass. It's fun to be Bear Paulson's wife. I gotta say, because my own level of badassery is, you know, okay, but I achieve a whole nother level when I'm his sidekick, and I like that. I like I like being Bear Paulson's wife in the in the like famous sense. I also like being his wife in the personal sense. So this is titled Following My Father. Uh, it was published in the summer of 2016 Boundary Waters Journal. And here's how it goes. This was on July 22nd. Dear Dad, Last night I drifted off to the melancholy song of a chickadee. I woke to waves calmly lapping the sandy shore. Camped alone on a rough beach sparsely populated with stunted old jack pine, I'm where I need to be, exploring a vast wilderness. This time I'm in Saskatchewan, a little south of Lake Athabasca. I paddle down the McFarland River, and I'm traveling up the William River on a month-long solo trip. The only human for many, many miles. You are the reason I spend every summer canoeing in Canada. I'm compelled to do these trips. They're in my blood. Thank you for that. I miss you. Today would be your 85th birthday. I've now lived half my life with you and the other half without you. Despite the many years you've been gone, you're still with me and always will be. You instilled an everlasting love of wilderness camping and exploring in me. And many of my fondest memories are from camping trips with you. Since you introduced me to wilderness camping on Lac LaCroix and the BWCA when I was one and a half years old, I spent some of nearly every summer camping on Northern waters. My first memories of wanting to walk straight through the woods, something blocked my path and forced me to take a longer route. When I asked you about that hazy memory as a teenager, you told me I was two and a half and we were camped with family friends on Saginaw Lake in the BWCA. A hornet nest sat on the short path between the two tent sites and you strung ropes to create a fence so that I could not go near the nest. When I was six, we took the inaugural family trip to Dashwa Crow Rock, Northwest of Atticoke in Ontario. 
We often went with your brother, Uncle Jerry and his family. You timed our trips for blueberry season and the sweet fruity smell of your blueberry pancakes wafted through the campsite in the mornings. We always camped on the same south facing beach. The beach had clear boundaries, the black lagoon way west, a stagnant and murky bay, the waterfall rock beckoned east. Cousin Kirk, little sister Wendy and I would carry an endless stream of ice cream buckets to the top and pour water down the rock's cracks, delighting in our ephemeral waterfalls. No better babysitter ever lived. Several times, we kids attempted to circle the small island near our campsite. Often the inflatable brigade tired before we reached the island and turned back. One time a raft started to lose air. The year we finally completed the circumnavigation, I remember a painful sunburn, a small price to pay for our achievement. I grew to love camping and exploring at Dashwa Crow Rock. That fascination has only increased. At 10, you brought me to Dibble Lake, northwest beyond Dashwa Crow Rock on the first trip we had to Portage. You loved to fish, so we traveled with square stern grubbin canoes and small outboard motors, which guaranteed plenty of time trolling for walleye. We crossed each portage three times, carrying gas, motors, equipment, and food. We started toward Dimble on White Otter Lake. The castle of White Otter stands at the northwest end of the lake. You had first visited the castle in the 50s and told me stories about it. I vividly remember my first sight of White Otter Castle. Its size and grandeur captured my imagination, especially given its isolated location. The tower rises four stories and lords over the surrounding forest. Jimmy McQuatt, a trapper, built the castle at the turn of the 20th century. He raised logs 41 feet long, weighing over a ton by himself. A friend helped him carry window glass over the many portages from Ignis, the nearest town. McQuatt received no other assistance building the castle. At that age, I stood in awe of the castle. I still do. It stands as a testament to one man's perseverance and ingenuity and inspired my first dreams of wilderness living. We canoed in Northwestern Ontario every Memorial Day after that. Most trips lasted five and a half days. We'd leave about noon, drive 10 hours, and camp near the put-in after dark. We'd rise early and travel to our base camp and spend three full days enjoying the wilderness. Sometimes I would wake before you started making breakfast. There was always a canoe missing. You enjoyed the solitude of dawn and would happily forego sleep to see more of this beautiful world. As I age, I find myself doing the same. The final morning of the trip, You'd rise in the wee hours and start breakfast. The rest of us would soon stir. We'd inhale breakfast, break camp, travel back to the vehicles and arrive home in the evening despite the long drive. You squeezed as much time in the wilderness as you could into those five and a half days. I wouldn't do it any other way. For a few years, we explored Moberly Lake on the Bright Sand River near Ignis. We traveled with Uncle Jerry, cousins Eric and Kirk. Kirk and I lobbied to have our own canoe once we reached camp. We never did much fishing, instead spending our time exploring. My insatiable love of seeing new places continues to this day. When I began a solo trip on Moberly, I learned why you always had us portage the first rapid. I swamped my canoe and swam the last third of it. The next year, we ventured to a new lake, Copsicamac, north of Fort Francis. Copsy marked the first time Kirk and I could get lost on a sizable lake, and we ventured a long distance away from camp with that old outboard motor. Kirk loves to recount the time we stood casting from a rock in the middle of the lake and heard something. We shushed each other. Your voice came booming across the lake from miles away. Ted! We hurried back, but it took an hour to reach camp. When we returned, I don't recall either you or Uncle Jerry being outwardly concerned. 
then again, the Paulson family has never been too excitable. The following summer brought a new experience. Perhaps Kirk and I went too far afield on Copsy, or maybe you decided we could finally pull our own weight. We paddled through a morning fog on French Lake as we entered Quetigo Provincial Park. The trip marked my first experience without a motor. I like not having to portage the motor and gas cans. It felt natural. I loved the silence. When we reached the broad expanse of Pickerel Lake, we rigged a crude sail. We must have presented quite a sight. Three aluminum canoes lashed together with two pink shower curtains sagging from our mast. Sadly, the wind didn't cooperate and we soon stowed the shower curtains and resigned ourselves to paddling. That day we traveled to Antoine Lake, your favorite in Quetigo. The lakes that drew you were always off the beaten path. We paddled 21 miles and crossed four portages in one long day. At the campsite, I lay exhausted on the rocks, complaining about my aching shoulders. At the time, I'd been lifting weights in preparation for high school football, but all my bench presses and curls didn't prepare me to paddle. I was humbled by the paddling and even more humbled by how effortlessly you did it. The next day I sought true relaxation. My tackle box held my Walkman, portable speakers and tapes of a few classic 80s bands. I hadn't yet discovered the value of leaving civilized distractions behind and immersing myself in wilderness. When not listening to our limited musical selection at camp, Kirk and I took great pleasure in approaching a gull nesting area. Inspired by the movie Red Dawn, Kirk or I would call out DEFCON 5 as the gulls swooped down defending the colony. We shouted DEFCON 4 as they grew more aggressive. Once we waited too long to evacuate and the gull flew between Kirk in the bow and me in the stern, DEFCON 1. I've often watched similar behaviors in the high school students I take to the BWCA for week-long trips. I do my best to encourage their regard for wilderness in the same way you did mine, giving them reasonable freedom to learn their own respect. Thanks for your patience with me. An appreciation for wilderness takes time to develop. On Memorial Day weekend, a few years later, I requested that we return to White Otter and Dibble Lakes. I wanted to paddle instead of using motors, and we compromised on Kirk and I paddling while you motored ahead to fish. By afternoon, you suggested towing us to the castle so we could pause there and still reach Dibble. Again, I gazed at the castle and dreamed. I still dream of living in the North Woods. Though for now, I'm fortunate to spend 10 weeks camping in the wilderness every year. We discussed another trip later in the summer, and I suggested bringing along Wendy, my little sister. I can't fathom why I made the suggestion. As a sophomore in high school, Wendy obsessed over hairspray and fashionable clothing. Wilderness travel doesn't allow for curling irons or blow dryers. This was Wendy's only canoe trip with you, and I'm so glad she came. Since then, Wendy and I have canoed and camped together more than 100 nights in seven states and four Canadian provinces and territories. The first trips we took together were in the Grumman. I have a picture on my desk of you paddling the Grumman solo through class two rapids on Wisconsin's Boisbrule River. I still have that old canoe and wouldn't part with it. It served as kind of a cradle for me. I recall early duck hunting trips when I was 10 or 11. We'd rise long before dawn, walk a mile on a muddy trail to a boggy lake. Then we would set out decoys in the pre-dawn frost before the season opened. After a couple hours in the blind, I'd get sleepy and nap in the Grumman the only dry place. What a sight I must have presented. A tall, lanky boy dressed in camouflage and hip boots, thick with many layers, curled up in the bottom of a cold aluminum canoe. I remember the first canoe trip I took with a friend after you died. In my many years of canoe trips with you, I'd never portaged the Grumman. You always carried the canoe without a word. My God, that aluminum beast was heavy. You did your cancerous bladder removed. 
and stood five inches shorter and at sometimes 80 pounds lighter than me. Your strength and stoicism continue to inspire me. After a few trips of my own in the Grumman, I wanted a lighter canoe so I could paddle solo. For college graduation, I requested a canoe and mom agreed to pay half the cost once she learned the price of a new Kevlar, Be Kevlar Bell canoe. My first job after college laid me off a year after graduation. Instead of being disappointed, I had the summer free. I departed June 15th on the long solo trip. I had no specific return date in mind, and in the end, I paddled four and a half months. I started at the Little Indian Sioux River in the BWCA and wandered all through Northwest Ontario and into Manitoba before turning toward home. I saw the town of Red Lake for the first time from the seat of my canoe. I visited our old camps at Lac La Croix, Antoine, Dashra Crow Rock, White Otter, and Dibble. I spent two poignant nights on the Dashra Crow Rock Beach. The waterfall rock was smaller than I recalled, and I relished pouring buckets of water down it. The black lagoon didn't seem so ominous. The chickadees sang at dusk, and I savored wonderful memories. When I die, I want some of my ashes scattered at Dashra Crow Rock. I came of age on the long solo trip, and most significantly, it was a paddle through memories of time with you. At times, I think I have visited many of the places you took me in hopes I would find something of you there. And then, not finding you, I continue searching in any place that looks interesting. You are the person I most respect. As I age, I become more similar to you in spirit, though my love of wilderness expresses itself differently. You are a passionate hunter and fisherman, and I haven't hunted or used a motor in over 20 years. However, I am grateful for the experience with firearms. When I paddled the Seal River in Manitoba to Hudson Bay, I carried a shotgun for polar bear protection. I haven't used a motor since you died, I dislike having my travels constrained by the gas that I carry, and paddling is more conducive to exploring. I don't come out here to hunt or fish, but the more I think about it, hunting and fishing weren't your only reasons for being out here either. Like hunters and fishermen, your trips were enhanced by catching fish and bagging game, but lack of success did not dim their appeal. I recall how you had enjoyed watching chickadees from the deer stand. You would carve a small groove in the log railing and put out sunflower seeds for the chickadees. All day they would grace us with their cheerful and lively presence. Chickadees make me smile and remind me of you. Their gentle presence conceals their fortitude. Chickadees never depart for warmer climes. On cold, clear days, their songs ring through the forest and make me feel at home. Their calls are a few simple notes, yet my interpretation of them varies with my mood. Most of the time, their music cheers my heart, though sometimes, as day vanishes and darkness gathers, their songs take on the melancholy sound of a eulogy. The songs of chickadees are like my memories of you, overwhelmingly happy, but tinged by sadness. Why do I love being out here? Sometimes I'm not even sure what my reasons are for coming out here. They're too innate, too much of what I am. I love watching wildlife and seeing stunning scenery, but ultimately like catching fish and bagging game, these things are not necessary. They aren't why I'm sitting on this beach. They don't make or break the trip. Why do I come out here? Because I need to be out here. I search, I wonder, I feel immense gratitude. I am at home. I've seen only one group of people on this trip. They were canoeists and we compared notes on the places we'd paddled. One of them asked me which trip was my favorite. I gave my standard reply, the next one. A more candid answer would have been a trip with you. I realize though that you are always with me and for that I'm thankful. Thank you for taking me wilderness camping and whetting my appetite to explore. 
thank you for encouraging a sense of gratitude, wonder, and humility in me. You died on my birthday, December 17th. I love the happy yet melancholy evening song of the chickadee in the same way I love my birthday. I set the day aside every year. I reflect and mourn. I celebrate your memory. A chickadee song is all the brighter in the depths of winter's darkness. Mm -mm. Thank you, Bear. That was beautiful. You're welcome. And it's going, I'm Claire Porter, wife of Bear Paulson, and more importantly, mother of Bashful Paulson. It's really fun to watch Bear get so excited about writing around this sort of thing and sharing these stories. Because, you know, there's nobody saying he has to. It's not part of a job. Um, he, and he works so, so hard at it. You know, I, I often think of the stories that Bear tell, tells about his dad. He'll tell the stories, but I got a lot of that from the following my father from editing that, which was no pressure. One of the first things he gave me to edit, like, dude, we just started dating here. And I'm supposed to help you with this. <laughs> This was something that I thought of following my father was a title that I came up with years before. And I started to write little pieces of it. And then it would go off in a direction that I didn't expect it to. And I just kind of put it aside. And I, boy, I tried to write it quite a few times because I wanted to write something to him, about him, for him. Um, I really struggled with what, anecdotes would capture the feeling that I wanted the best because of course there's a ton of them and ultimately with the help of my wife um this is what it got carved down into because there were there were numerous other parts that were either you know tangential to the actual real story um confused the real story you know you name it what what finally came to be is what I'd always hoped it would be I've watched him work so hard at pulling out the larger narrative arc and learning to drop some of the details, but bringing in the details at the critical moments where they bring life to a story. Wow. It's really fun to watch, to, to have watched, to watch that evolution. And it's really fun for him to, it's really fun for me to watch his pride in Dash. We would go into Canada, uh, in fact, to the namesake, the lake that's now the namesake for Dashwa, right? We would go to Lake Dashwa for a couple summers in a row. And that was our, our week family vacation, being in nice clear water, clean water, being able to fish, to play, to explore, um, which I think just set the tone for us and for, for his family and his, his uh, now, now, now his family to continue to do that. You know, dad was an older parent. He, he had me when he was 41. Uh, and I think older parents are more hands-off in general. Um, and so he would, he would teach me specific things when I was ready or willing to learn them. Um, but mostly just taught by example. Um, when I set off on my first solo trips, you know, I was really comfortable in the wilderness, but I still had a lot to learn. In those first couple of solo trips, the long solo trip was preceded by one other solo trip that was 18 days. Um, and prior to those, you know, I had done very little wildernessy stuff on my own you know, where you couldn't just lean on somebody else and say, okay, what do you think about this? And 
you know, you bounce it off somebody else and you figure it out. And all of a sudden I was stumbling around out there on my own. And so telling the stories about the, the Grumman, uh, portaging the Grumman for the first time, and then judging the rapid at Moberly, you know, misjudging the rapid at Moberly, you know, those were, those were two examples of things that, you know, he certainly could have said, Hey, you have to do this right now. You know, you have to, should we run this rapid or not? And, you know, you, uh, you need to learn how to portage that thing, but he never did because I never said I wanted to. And he just, he wasn't going to push me to do things so much as let me do things that I wanted to do and help me learn the things that I wanted. And mostly with the goal, at least I think, and it's my goal now as a parent, giving somebody the experience in the wilderness, but not necessarily all the how-tos, you know, giving somebody the comfort with the wilderness because the comfort matters so much more, at least in my mind, especially now with benefit of hindsight, than all the little things do, all the, all the little skills do. daddy it's it's absolutely sweet um yeah he's I think he's been preparing a lifetime of how to um give someone space but keep them safe that's a lucky little guy the funny thing about the story of adventuring with dash is that so when when Vera and I got married I, I wanted to have kids he wasn't so sure but we decided we wanted to be with each other more than anything else. And I always came down on the side of wanting two kids. And he said, no, 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 one tops. And I was like, why? What's wrong with two? They, they play with each other then. And he's like, can't go winter camping with two kids. You can't go canoeing the Arctic with two kids. And I want our kid, kids, I want whoever we bring into this world to be a part of what we do. And we'll change how we do it for them, but we're not going to stop doing it for them. Uh, and I love that. I love that because I knew then that he would be all in on the kids, kid or kids that we did have, that he wouldn't say, oh, we only had these kids for you, so you deal with them. That he would bend heaven and earth to make it so they could be with us, so he could be with us. And that we'd have the greatest stories of all. <laughs> and so when I started taking high school kids on trips, and this is, I've done it for now 20, 20 plus years. The first few times I would check off all the boxes and say, okay, now everybody started the stove. Okay. Now everybody started a fire, you know, and you did, I did all those sorts of things because it's like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to have that list and they're supposed to fulfill the list because you know, partly because it was, it, it had a, the, the trip had a class credit attached to it, but more so because, you know, that's what you think is supposed to happen. And so what you're alluding to, and my story alludes to the same way is it's, it's not really sometimes I think the best way to go. Um, and so in later trips, I focused a lot more on just the adventure and the accomplishment. Um, and so I'd put, always, I've pushed the high school kids along to do something more than they'd like to do, because of course, most kids are lazy by nature. And I focused a lot less on the specific skills. So if a kid said, hey, I wanna learn how to light the fire, it's like, totally, let's have somebody else teach you how to do it. I might give a little bit of feedback on it, but we're gonna, we're gonna have one of your other classmates teach you how to do this. And if I'm the only one that knows how to do it, then I'll teach it. I was lucky to keep getting dragged along and dragged along and I kept going and he, he 
he really worked with me. He really took care of me in a in a very hands-off kind of way. Like, you know, you've just got to do it. You know, there's just isn't an option here. We get into situations where I just had to do things and I had to push my boundaries. And that's what bear trips are. One has to push one's boundaries. And I, over my life, I learned to push those boundaries and become, I guess, who I am for sure. He's a huge part of that. The stories that you come back with from a trip and what happens, what you, what you exit a trip with when you go to tell people about it matters so much more in terms of what you want to do in the future than learning how to light that stove did. Um, so kind of the proverbial lighting of the fire matters more than actually doing it. And that's the essence of what dad taught. Because if you just push them, they don't, they'll just resist. I mean, that's what kids do. That's, that's their nature. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, I've got a three-year-old he's going to resist everything that I push hard, but the minute he wants to, it's like, oh my God, he's just into it. Oh yeah. You know, it's funny. Our friend, well, you know, I'm sure you know, Dan Cook, he went on a Kazan with us, river in, um, none of it, Northwest Territories, none of it. It's a little dash. He had this fascination with sticks and he'd call them, he'd pick up a stick and call it his windblower. He'd come up to the screen and at the beginning of our trip on the no attack, and the screen's an important thing on the lean. It uh, keeps the bugs out for when you never know when they might be severe. And we were trying to tell him, you know, you can't touch the mosquito screen with his windblower, his stick. We didn't want it to tear as most little soon-to-be three-year-olds, they got to test the boundaries. He'd come up close to the screen and we'd tell him, no, 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 you can't do that. And I said, you touch the screen and I'm going to take your stick and throw it, your windblower into the river. It's going to be gone. And he was looking at me and made sure we had eye contact. And he'd come up to the screen and he touched it ever so lightly. And I got up out of my chair and undid the zipper on the lean and got outside and grabbed that stick out of his hands and I marched down to the river and I threw it way out into the middle of the river and it was gone. He kind of wasn't sure whether he should cry or not. He sniffled a little bit and went up to mom and mom tried to console him a little bit that he told, we told you that it was not good to touch the screen. And, and after a while he was comforted enough to, he went outside and he found another windblower stick. And he'd come up to the screen. He was watching me, making sure I was watching. And he got a little close and got a little close. And finally, he touches the screen ever so lightly. And then he windblower in the river. And he marches down to the river and throws it into the river. <laughs> <laughs> so he knew what the consequence was, but he just had to do it. <laughs> and he did it himself. My wife, Claire, and I are, are doing our best to normalize camping for Dash. Uh, he's a little three years old. He's a little over three years old, and he's, he's spent well over 100 nights in tents. Um, and uh, I, wanna, I want him to spend as much time in the woods as, as, as I'm able to give him. Um, I want him to feel at home in the woods. Uh, and, and I believe that the, 
the wonder, humility, gratitude uh, will come with, you know, examples and kind of gentle nudges. Um, the wilderness is the teacher. I'm just kind of the one that, that, that facilitates it is kind of the way I see it. When I joined him on the winter trips uh, in the Bonder Waters, I, I didn't know what to expect having a, you know, a five-month-old or four-month-old, you know, uh, in, 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 in the winter in the tent for a few nights, several nights, uh, or this last year when I went, right? So having a three-year-old and and uh, it, 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 it's been a lot of fun, uh, not only just to sort of, uh, I guess, just be there with family, but more importantly, to see to see Bear interact with his son, with Dashua, um, showing patience, um, uh, spending time with his son in terms of uh, making sure his son was just willing to explore on his own and walk around outside the tent and meander around in snowshoes and small skis and build snow forts and just be comfortable, be comfortable in that type of a setting, right? And so I, I can say with confidence that um, that that Dashua is going to be comfortable someday doing his own trips or finding solitude or exploring the wilderness, much like, like Bear, Bear's been able to do, um, which is, which is really, which is, which is a pretty neat thing. Absolutely. Follow, letting the child, encouraging the child to follow what they love um, within the, within the confines of what we love as a family. Cause that really helps us bring all sorts of joy to each other. Sometimes their path seems, you don't understand why, why it goes the way it does, but it's their path. Um, just as mine is mine. It's going to be interesting to see whether he, the little guy dash embraces this when he becomes of age or whether he'll be done with what his parents enjoy. It's what kids do. They, they choose their path. I had Dash when I was 48, um, and so unlike my, like a lot of women, um, my biological clock is definitely ticking, hmm. um, and I really want to share as many trips with him as I can. I absolutely love doing solo trips. Um, solo trips are are the way that I feel the most connected to the wilderness. They make me feel the most spiritual. They make me feel the most thankful. You know, they're when there's no boundaries. And so I, I absolutely love solo trips. And I've spent over two years of my life on solo trips. And so it's weird to have my my perspective shifted so strongly. But right at this point, I want to spend as much time out there as I can with Dash. And I, I don't even think Claire, I think Claire's a little bit baffled when it's like, ah, you know what, I'm okay not going solo because I really want that time with Dash. You know, by the time he can proverbially, proverbially carry the Grumman, I'm going to be starting to have trouble doing it. I, I'm aware of the fact that, that, that we're on different trajectories in a, in a significant way. And so if you ask people who have lost um, a same-sex parent at a younger age, uh, early, they very frequently tie their life expectancy to the age the parent was when the parent died. And that's just kind of a natural way to do it. Um, and so dad, dad was 63. I think Claire feels like that's kind of a sad way to look at things. Um, like, you know, because for me, that's 11 years away. But I view it more as, you know, mortality is kind of a gift. 
hardship and loss are gifts. Without them, we wouldn't have the gratitude and the wonder and the humility, and we sure wouldn't have the stories. And it's not that I wouldn't rather have dad get to see his grandson grow up, but it's to say that without him passing, there's a lot of things I wouldn't have realized. And at some point, I hope Dash gets to realize those too. You know, camping was pretty normal for me as a kid. In fact, I shouldn't say pretty normal. It was super normal as a kid. You know, it's just what we did as a family. But when I got to college, it was like, oh my God, most people don't spend very much time outdoors, do they? Wow. Okay. Maybe, maybe that was a little bit odd that we did so much of that. Um, or normal, depending on your point of view. The friends in college would be like, what do you mean you're going outside again? And it's like, well, why wouldn't I want to go outside? I'm going to hike around in the woods. And, you know, they wanted to hang out in the dorm room. And of course, I did more of that my freshman and sophomore year than I'd ever expected to do. But it's just because what everybody else did. And gradually it was like, I don't want to do that. I want to I want to go out and play in the woods. (laughs) I was very fortunate to have my baseline be the woods and the wilderness as opposed to the basement. And it's not to say I didn't spend plenty of time in basements, you know, playing video games and that other things as I was growing up. It's just to say that the woods came naturally because I was exposed to them so much. And I mean, I totally remember, I ran into a couple on on the long solo trip. I was, I had just finished the stretch in Manitoba and I was coming back into Ontario. And so it was, you know, I had been out for two and a half, three months. And the woman was just like, so what happens on a trip like this when everything's going wrong and you just don't want to be here anymore? And it just, you know, it, it sucks so badly that you just want to be home. And I kind of went, well, what do you mean? I, I don't understand your question, really. And, and of course, you know, I did, you know, intellectually, but practically speaking, it's like, no, I want to be out here. You know, why, why would I want to leave? There's, there's, I, I couldn't at that point conceive of a reason that I'd want to leave. I can share one experience that way now because it's not fair to make it sound like there's never ever a time where it's just like, oh my God, this is this is overwhelming. And that was I did a solo trip on uh it was the Pinamuta River, which is northwest Ontario. It's north of Pickle Lake a little ways. And so I planned to go down the Pinamuta and then up the Atosquin. It rained for 12 straight days. And you know, everybody's like, oh, rain for 12 straight days. And it's like, no, actually, there was about an hour of sun and about three hours of blue sky that whole 12 days. And that river went well beyond in the flood. And I talked with, uh, well, Bob O'Hara is a, is a, is a, you know, very famous local canoeist and he went out a little bit further North and basically said the same thing. Holy crap. Did that weather suck. And so I got down the Pinamuta and then I was planning on going up the Atosquin. And this was one of those classic teaching moments that I hadn't had yet, which was if you go down a river and you, you lock your trip into the concept that you're going to be able to go down and then you're going to be able to go up the next one. Well, what happens if the next one is beyond flood stage and you, it's going to be a portage for the next 50 miles? You know, everywhere that there's moving water, it's going to be a bushwhack because the portages don't exist as far along those rapids as, uh, as that water is filled out. And I, I started to go up the Atosquin just a little bit and started to rethink and said, you know what? there's a native village downstream just a little ways further 
I'm going to go check into the concept of a flight because I had no satellite communication or anything else with me. And so I started to say, you know, there's no way I'm going to make it back out on time. If I try to go up this river, I am going to be so overdue. You know, I'm going to be days and days and days overdue. And, you know, one of my cardinal rules in the days before, you know, satellite communication was really available at all was I'm never late. I will never, ever, ever be late because I'd be out for, you know, three weeks or something like that. And so to, to freak out mom or my sister, uh, you know, who were the two contacts in those days with me being late was just not an option. And so that one, I said, you know, let's reevaluate this. And I paddled down to the little, little village, Lansdowne House is the is na- anglicized name of it, acquired about flights and finally found something that was super cheap uh, because they'd flown food in and, uh, and they could fly me and my little tiny canoe back out again as a backhaul. That is the one trip that I did abandon about halfway down it, halfway into it. Um, but otherwise, being calm and being patient, being humble, you know, all those things are what wilderness really imparts strongly. Because you learn that whenever you violate those things, you know, if you freak out and stop really thinking about what's going on, you watch what happens to people that get into that situation. And the outcome is almost never good. <laughs> yes. You know, it's just, it's not a happy place to be. And it can be a dangerous one as well. Um, and so, yeah, that, that dad's way of being really helped that a lot. Dash has a book uh, that's titled Because I'm Your Dad. Um, and each page kind of starts with uh, the yes. Because I'm Your Dad. And, you know, one is we'll have spaghetti for breakfast and others about French toast for dinner, uh, building mud forts in the backyard. And the last page is the one that, that, that even, even the first time I read it, it stopped me cold. Um, and now it just kind of, you know, brings a little bit more water to the eyes. Uh, and in that last page is because that's what my dad did for me. And so that book is remains one that I love to read and equally is a hard one to read. The stories are fun to share. I really, you know, it's one of those things, uh, they're, they're hard to share in certain ways, but they're so important to, to who I've become, who I am. And, uh, and I sure hope that, uh, that other people enjoy them too. Beautiful storytelling, Matthew. Uh, great to learn more about Bear Paulson and his experiences and just that passage, that connection for fathers and sons, daughters, fathers, and their role and introduction to the Boundary Waters. Beautiful storytelling. Absolutely. And huge thanks to all the folks who bear this iconic member of our paddling community all those who know him and love him that talked to me for this episode. So special thanks to Eric Paulson, Wendy Paulson, uh, Bear's sister, Dan Cook, good friend, and uh, of course Claire Porter, Bear's very esteemed partner in life and mother of Dash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so nice to hear a collection of voices. And you know, Bear Paulson, I first met him when working as a at a canoe outfitter up the Gunflint Twenty 
13 probably bear brought the North star canoes to the outfitter on a huge trailer and out steps this big lanky tall guy like, Oh, who's this? I'm bear Paulson delivering these canoes. You know, he's just so friendly talking about fishing routes around mid trail area, had an immediate connection, you know, with him. Totally. It's fun to think of those first encounters. I, I always think of when I first moved up the Gunflint, I was working the Boundary Waters Expo in 2015. That sort of short-lived but very mm. fun uh, little gathering. Yeah, up at Seagull or the Bearskin one? This was when it was up at Seagull, mm-hmm. year one, uh, and Bear had a booth, and he was sitting in his camp chair, just eating breakfast this is you know camping bowl and spoon and uh-huh. this is this you know tall lanky guy in this little bitty camp chair with a content smile on his face being around his people at a in his place and i remember thinking wow the, who is this fascinating character <laughs> all those years ago nice yeah well it's great to learn a little more about bear and uh, of course, they've been uh, so supportive of the podcast and its growth and just where we're at. So thanks to North Star and Bear and everybody that you mentioned too, Matthew. And uh, here we are, we're rolling into winter. We mentioned, here's a little teaser for podcast listeners. We mentioned father-daughter uh, leading into the wilderness and sharing those experiences together too. Stay tuned for an upcoming episode and hear a little bit more about that theme uh, coming soon to an episode like Maybe the next episode. <laughs> we'll wait and see. Uh, we've got so much content as we change into winter that uh, we'll just see how it starts to roll out. Thanks for listening, everybody. Get out there. Enjoy the change in season and come up and pay us a visit. Tip up time in the Boundary Waters. I'm going ice fishing within a couple of days. I'll be skating right alongside of you. And if you catch a big northern, I'll eat it too. Five filet, five filet. Five filet, five filet. I just sing when I paddle canoe. Feeling not thinking if the strokes are true. We're gonna get through to the other side. Out in the night, the waves beat the shore. You can hear them pounding, you can hear them roar. Rock me in my dreams You can roll me Rock me in my dreams So I like to sing I love to dance I play the fool if I got the chance All around The campfire light All around The campfire light All around All around All around Campfire light.